You're listening to Cultivate Curiosity, a podcast that inspires the next generation to stay curious. Cultivate Curiosity is brought to you by the Emerald Coast Science Center, a nonprofit interactive science museum and STEAM educational facility in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. This podcast is perfect for anyone curious about the world we live in because you never know what we'll talk about next. Hello, my name is Harley and I'm an educator and the community affairs coordinator here at the Emerald Coast Science Center. And hi, I'm JC, the social media coordinator. And hi, I'm Diane. I'm the director. And welcome to Cultivate Curiosity, a podcast put out by the Emerald Coast Science Center. And today we're going to be talking about invasive species in Florida. I'd like to start out by saying we might sound a little bit better today because we have some brand new podcasting equipment thanks to the Air Force Research Laboratory. And it's also really great for all three of us to be back together again. Yes. <laughs> we're finishing up a very busy summer here at the Science Center and we were all going in different directions. So, you know, you've had JC by herself a lot <laughs> carrying the weight for the team or uh, depending on whether Harley was out of town or I was out of town. So thank you, JC, for, of course. you know, keeping the Even podcast though- going over the summer yeah even though I don't like listening to my own voice I can edit it yeah I don't like that either <laughs> yeah I don't like to do that either all right so let's dig into the invasive species so we're all here because Florida is such a wonderful place to live with such a great temperate climate and so humans aren't the only ones that like a climate like that an invasive species can be plants animals or other living organisms including microbes living in the area where they do not naturally exist or whose introduction causes or is likely to cause economic or environmental mental harm or harm to human health. Invasive species are spread primarily by human activities, often unintended, and invasive species can be introduced to an area by ship ballast water, firewood, accidental release, and by people. So just as we said, why Florida? It's because we have this wonderful temperate climate that attracts visitors and out-of-state transplants for decades. But it isn't just the people that are moving to the state from faraway locations. Florida is plagued by more than 500 non-native plants and animal species. Some of these animals are wrecking hovac on delicate ecosystems around the state. While not all of these are non-native species cause harm, many pose serious threats to the environment, economy, and even our health. Some species simply compete with local wildlife for resources or prey on other animals, while others have the potential to be deadly to humans and pets. Because Florida's climate is so hospitable, invasive species cause more of a crisis here than anywhere else in the continental United States. The fact that Florida serves as a point of entry for almost three-fourths of the plants imported into the United States and the majority of the world's reptile trade compounds the problem. All of Florida's native habitats, marine, freshwater, and terrestrial, are threatened by invasive species. So let's dig into what some of those animals might be. And some of them are right here in our area, and some of them are a little bit further down south in the state. But as we continue to warm, they're going to start migrating up here. So we might be seeing them in a couple of years. So let's start with feral hogs. They have been around for a long time. They're prolific breeders and um, can maintain sizable populations, even though they're a popular hunting target. The hogs mostly eat plants. Their habit of rooting around the ground causes considerable damage to native ecosystems. They're also extremely aggressive and pose a threat to humans. Wild hogs can reach weights of more than 150 pounds and measure five to six feet long. How did they get here? Florida's feral hogs can trace their ancestors back to the Spanish conquistadors in the 16th century. Early European settlers brought livestock, including pigs, and some escaped. 
Florida is estimated to have more than 500,000 wild hogs. And we do actually have these here. They are on the Eglin Reservation lands, and they are one of the few animals that have an open hunting season. You know, deer season, you have turkey season. These are different times of the years that you have to get a hunting license to be able to get out there and hunt them. But feral hogs are open season all the time because we really want to get rid of those. And if you're driving from Niceville or Valparaiso into Fort Walton, sometimes you can see them on the side of the road. I've seen them <sighs> a couple times, that as well as the deer, but the hogs, I'm always shocked when I see them, and then they run into the woods. My daughter's an environmental scientist, and she does a lot of wetland delineations, and she's out in the woods all the time, and she brings me back all these bones. And she has a beautiful hog skull that she brought the other day. But that's one of her biggest fears mm-hmm. is, you know, being out in the in the woods, walking around, doing delineations or mitigations or, or you know, stormwater or whatever, and coming upon a feral hog. Yeah, they can be very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about one we don't have here yet. <laughs> Hopefully we never get, especially because a lot of people have a really, bad feeling about this type of animal and that would be the Burmese pythons. So these are non-venomous constrictors but they can grow to be enormous lengths. They can reach a length of 26 feet and weigh more than 200 pounds. The average size of a Burmese python removed in Florida is about 8 to 10 feet. In the Everglades, large number of Burmese pythons prey on endangered birds and their eggs along with frogs and native species. They have decimated the ecosystem within the Everglades. They're an apex predator and they don't have, you know, there's nobody there to take them out. I mean, they've seen Burmese pythons that have swallowed baby alligators before. As so. well as deer. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and deer. So it's, it's a huge issue. They've really changed the ecosystem in the Everglades. They've wiped out the whole bottom of the food pyramid down there. But how did they get here? They invaded Florida when snakes that were kept as pets were released or escaped or thrived in Florida because of the warm predator-free conditions. Tens of thousands of invasive of Burmese pythons are estimated to be present in the Everglades. Please be aware that these are not the same type of snake as a ball python. The ball python is a common pet snake, and we have several of those at the Science Center. They can only grow to be three to five feet, and they are not invasive, and they are not wiping out the ecosystem. But they, Florida does have a Burmese python challenge hunt every year. They give out cash prizes. You can register and take a little short course and go down there and see how many python you can collect. The just finished up August 13th. Yeah, August 13th was the finish of this year's Python Challenge, so they haven't released the results yet, but you can, uh, you know, keep your eyes open for that. There's usually a lot of newspaper articles about it, so check the news in the next couple of weeks, and we'll see. I mean, I know one time there was like a 15-foot python, so it's like the longest and the heaviest and like the most they give different prizes for. So now we're going to talk about an amphibian, a cane toad. So these are also called bufo toads, and they're dangerous animals because they secrete a toxic substance when bitten. Dogs are the most frequent victims and can suffer from seizures when exposed to these secretions. They eat almost everything, including native frogs, insects, and fish. They even eat pet food if you have pet food that's left out. And we all know we're not supposed to leave pet food outside because it also attracts some native animals like bears. These toads are often confused with the native southern toad, which is not toxic. They got here because they were introduced to Florida to control agricultural pests in sugarcane in the 1930s and the 1940s. It is believed that the current populations are a result of pet trade escapes and releases in the 1950s and 60s. We did do a Curiosity Live last year, so you can check that out, that we talked about the difference between a cane toad and a native southern toad. And I think I even caught a southern toad in my yard for that episode. (laughs) 
<laughs> so those guys are supposed to be here. And then let's talk about iguanas because I think we always see on Instagram and TikTok the frozen iguanas. Yeah, they're falling from the trees whenever it gets cold in South Florida. So green iguanas have been steadily making their way north since the first appeared in the South Florida in the 1960s. They're big spiny lizards that can damage structures when they dig burrows beneath the foundations and they poop everywhere. For the most part, they eat plants, but they can also eat snails and bird eggs. They can grow up to five feet long, and they can weigh up to 17 pounds. So originally, they were brought to Florida as pets or inadvertently on ships and have begun to flourish in the state. More than 3,000 green iguanas have been spotted in southeast Florida alone since the Center for Invasive Species started tracking these sightings in 2005. And we went to the Keys during the pandemic. We took our boat down there, and so they are everywhere. I mean, they are everywhere in Key West. There's a, a state park that we went to and they were all over the place and uh, we went and rode bikes by the cemetery and there was tons of iguanas. I mean, they, they can't even manage the population down there. They're so prolific. They're everywhere down there. And then the last one I'm going to share with you today is giant African land snails. They're huge snails. They eat almost every kind of native plant species. And when they can't find enough calcium in the environment to build their shells, they eat stucco off the buildings and paint off your cars. They also carry a parasite that can cause meningitis in humans. Miami residents have been working since 2011 to eradicate the species and sightings are beginning to become rarer and rarer. Considering at about six months of age, they can lay an average of 100 eggs per month for the next eight to 10 years. So it's fortunate they're being close to being eradicated. So there was an original infestation in the 1960s was from a released pet. The current infestation detected in 2011 was from snails intended for use in religious rituals. All right. So the next one I want to share with you guys is Cuban tree frogs. These frogs prey on Florida's much smaller native tree frogs and small snakes, and their tadpoles compete with native tadpole species for space and resources. They are hard to identify because they can be white, gray, green, or brown and can even change colors. Some human tree frogs have dark streaks or splotches on their backs, while others are nearly solid in color with no markings. So how did they get here? They were probably brought to Florida in the 1920s as hitchhikers on cargo ships, and since then they have become major pests. They invade toilets and can clog drains. They even invade power boxes and cause power outages. Okay, so you should look in your toilet. Yeah, yeah okay. I feel like mm-hmm. most people look in their toilets, for, or not their toilet, but like if they're at like like a stop or something like that traveling like you're thinking like a snake or something mm-hmm. is going to come out but now you have to worry about frogs as well I have a frog in my toilet i would throw it out yeah <laughs> harley has a thing about frogs <laughs> <laughs> So the next one is lionfish. We all kind of know a lot about lionfish, but they are voracious eaters and prey on smaller fish. They hunt around coral reefs and in seagrass beds. Because of their venomous spines, they have few natural predators. Lionfish upset the balance of the coral reefs off the coast of Florida and the Caribbean as they eat into native fish populations. So how did they get here? It's thought that lionfish were first introduced to the waters of the western Atlantic Ocean when aquarium owners dumped them. Native to the Pacific, lionfish were first spotted here in the 1980s and have spread through the Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico. Recent estimates of lionfish densities show the populations continuing to grow, with the highest estimates reporting over a thousand lionfish per acre in some locations. We do have a lionfish exhibit here at the Science Center where you can learn more about these invasive species and see real lionfish up close without being in danger as their venomous spines can also be harmful to humans too. Just like the Burmese python challenge, there's also a large lionfish challenge here that's happened during May 
day. We normally participate in it as a vendor to help educate people about invasive species, but it's a wonderful event. They catch thousands of lionfish. I think this year it was close to 20,000 lionfish. Yeah, at the lionfish so, tournament. Yes. And they also have a restaurant week that goes along with it where different restaurants will serve up lionfish dishes. They're apparently really delicious. Yeah, I think it's just a hard process to yeah to get, get the, spines the spines off, and, stuff, mm-hmm. but and you don't get a lot of meat from a lionfish. No, but I guess it's good mm-hmm. because then you're eating them and not having them out. So we also dissected them a couple times here. Yes, the kiddos see what's in their stomach, see what they're eating, see like how much of variety of foods they eat mm. and how damaging they can be to our ecosystem. And our refrigerator smell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're all done now. <laughs> <laughs> and the smell's not. No. <laughs> the next one is green mussels. The Asian green mussel has been popping up on Florida's coast since 2004. They grow in tightly packed beds and can smother native oyster beds. They can also cause problems with shipping and infrastructure as the mollusks weigh down buoys, clog intake valves and damage boats. So how did they get here? The green mussel is originally from the Indian and Pacific Oceans, but was introduced into the Gulf of Mexico in the 1990s, presumably as larvae trapped in cargo and tanker ballast water, which large ships take in to increase stability during transit and release upon arrival. Green mussels were first introduced in Tampa Bay in 1999. The next one I want to talk about is tegu lizards. So another large lizard species, South American tegus are known to burrow into the turtle and alligator nests and eat the eggs. While they're not aggressive to people, tegus pose a threat to native reptiles and ground nesting birds. They can grow up to four feet long and weigh up to 20 pounds. How did they get here? Tegus were introduced through the pet trade and have established breeding populations in Hillsborough and Miami-Dade counties. Though current population estimates are not available for this species, evidence suggests a possible expansion of their population in Florida. And so this one is kind of special because we do have an Argentine black and white tegu named Arnold that is at the Science Center. So due to her being an invasive species, we had to work with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to obtain the permit to have her at the Science Center. And she has some strict rules. She cannot be held or touched by anyone other than those employed by the Science Center. And she had to have a very specific enclosure, but you can still see her in her enclosure by the front desk when you come for a visit. But she may be hiding sometimes as well. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, like she said, they burrow. But what I love about this is um, she was donated to us by a family in Birmingham, and there are zero restrictions in Alabama on this animal. You know, I I met the guy halfway up in Georgiana in a parking lot at the Dollar General to pick her up because nobody in Alabama cares. But, you know, I had to have like all of my paperwork from Fish and Wildlife with me because as soon as I drove into Florida, then, yeah, it it makes a difference. Yeah, if you're not like pulled over or something, like, why do you have this ticket? Yeah. Well, here's my paperwork. It says (laughs) I can have it. But, um, and she also had to be pit tagged. Yes. So um, she had to be microchipped so that we could. Which um, the Golfarium Care Center was very generous and yes. gave us the pit tag so that we could have her pit tagged in time. Yeah, that was awesome of them. All right, I have two more. So feral cats carry toxoplasmosis, a parasite that can kill manatees and other mammals. It is urged that pet owners keep their pets indoors in areas with feral cats. Feral cat colonies also destroy wild bird populations. A free-ranging domestic cat can kill 100 birds per year. Unlike most predators in the wild, a pet cat that is being fed will stay in one area and continue to hunt even when prey populations decline. So how did they get here? Wherever humans go, they bring their cats. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission estimates that the population 
population of owned cats in Florida is about 9.6 million, and the feral cat population may be between 6.3 to 9.6 million. And if you do live in this area and you're willing to potentially put together an event that is a spay and neuter event that people can help catch these feral cats and have a day where we spay and neuter all of them, maybe vets and vet techs can put something together that's going to help decrease the feral cat population. Yes, because they did that in Gainesville, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, we see feral cats all the time, even here at the Science Center. They're just kind of everywhere. And what, what they do is they tip their ear. So if you see a cat um, that's just a feral cat and they have the tip of their ear cut off, that means that they have been spayed or neutered and re-released. Uh, the last one for our animal species is the red-eared sliders. So red-eared sliders are natives of the Mississippi River Valley as far north as Missouri and Illinois, south to the Delta, and as far east as southern West Virginia. They cause negative impacts on the ecosystems they occupy because they have certain advantages over the native populations, such as a lower age at maturity, higher fecundity the ability to produce an abundance of offspring rates, and larger body size, which gives them a competitive advantage at basking and nesting sites, as well as when exploiting food resources. They also transmit diseases and displace the other turtle species with which they compete for food and breeding space. Florida banned both the sale and possession of red-eared sliders in July of 2007. So how did they get here? Red-eared sliders are not native to Florida and have become an invasive species due to pet owners releasing them into the wild aquatic ecosystems of Florida. They have been sold by the hundreds of millions in dime stores and pet shops throughout the United States, and it is the most commonly exported reptile species, with over 52 million being exported from the United States from 1989 through 1997. As a result, this adaptable species has become established in many areas of the world where they can compete with native turtle species and prey upon fish. So we talked a lot about some animal species and invasive animal species. There are still more, even though we only listed a few. Um, but there's also invasive plant species. The forests of southeastern United States are increasingly facing the impacts of non-native invasive species. Many invasive plants affect forest health, productivity, access and use, and forest management cost and limit species diversity on millions of acres of southeastern forests. These plants displace native plants and associated wildlife and can alter natural processes such as fire regimes and hydrology. As foresters, landowners, and land managers, we must be proactive and meet this issue head-on to maintain the health, function, and long-term productivity of our forests. So I mentioned invasive and non-native, and so just to clarify what the difference is between those, a non-native invasive plants are essentially weeds in the woods or in other natural areas. Non-native, which is the plants that are not originally from the Florida United States, these plants are often introduced intentionally or accidentally by human activity. The most common source of plant introduction in Florida are import for ornamental horticultural purposes, introduction for agricultural purposes, and accidental introduction. Approximately one-third of the plant species growing on their own without cultivation in Florida are non-native. Invasive plants are plants that escape cultivation, become established in a forest or natural area, and start expanding and reproducing on their own. Once established, these plants often alter native plant communities, outcompete and kill native species, or otherwise affect natural ecosystems. So main difference to take away from that, non-native, they're not from here, but they're not altering that much or really anything to a harm. Invasive, not from here, but they're causing harm. Some invasive plants here in Florida, I'm just going to name a couple of them, but there are a ton that you can reference. 
Uh, the first one is Coggin grass. This is a tall, two, about two to five feet perennial grass with bright yellow-green foliage. The leaf blades have a mid-vein, which is clearly offset to one side, and serrated edges, or toothed edges. The rhizomes are hard, scaly, and cream-colored with sharply pointed tips. The seed head is fuzzy, white, and plume-like. Coggin grass is an invasive, non-native grass that occurs in Florida and several other southeastern states. A pest in 73 countries and considered to be one of the top 10 worst weeds in the world. Coggin grass affects pine productivity and survival wildlife habitat, recreation, native plants, fire behavior, site management costs, and more. Another one is the air potato vine. This, the air potato vine, is native to Asia, Africa, and Northern Australia. It was introduced into the United States and Alabama during the late 1700s and then into southern Florida in the early 1900s. Today, air potato is present in all 67 Florida counties. Additionally, air potato has been reported in Arkansas, Georgia, Hawaii, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas. The vine grows rapidly, climbing and forming dense blankets that smother understory plant species. It can persist in poor soil types and produce large numbers of bubbles, or tubers, from which new vines sprout. In Central and South Florida, it is considered one of the most common weeds in the natural area. In Florida, air potato vines sprout in the spring from underground tubers and bulbils that dropped during the previous growing season. Vines cannot support their own weight and will climb vegetation or any structure to reach sunlight, which is why they can be really dangerous. So what are some management tools that are going on? Well, chemical control is costly and requires repeat basil and foliar sprays over several years. Damage or death to non-target plants often occurs during these treatments as well. Additionally, new vines often continue to sprout from underground tubers when herbicide treatments cease. Then you have mechanical control, which mechanical control of air potatoes is labor intensive and time consuming. Basically, this means we're trying to dig out the tubers and bubbles and that's exhausting. Well, there's biological control, and this is where the air potato beetle enters the story. Biological control was determined to be the most promising management strategy for this invasive plant after the discovery of Liloceris chenai, which is a beetle. There's a Chinese and a Nepalese biotype. This beetle feeds exclusively on the air potato leaves. For over 10 years, the air potato biological control program that has been a collaborative effort between the FDAC's Division of Plant Industry, which is the Florida Department of Agricultural and Consumer Sciences, and the U.S. Department of Agricultural's Agricultural Research Service, and Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, and the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. So lots of people working together to try to get rid of these air potato plants and also rear and raise these air potato beetles. The release and establishment of this beetle in Florida has resulted in massive reduction in vine biomass, the bubble production and spread of the vine, and this program is considered one of the major successes in the field of biological control. If you are interested in learning more about that specific work, as well as other invasive plants, you can go to the fdax.gov website, and that's fdacs.gov. So why should we care about these plants? Uh, there are many reasons to be concerned about the expanding problem of invasive species, whether your primary interest in forestry is timber production, aesthetics, recreation, wildlife, or a combination of many benefits. All aspects of forest management can be affected by these plants' invasions. 
For example, approximately 46% of the federally listed threatened and endangered species in the United States are considered to be imperiled in part due to the impacts of invasive species. Economists have estimated that across the globe, 3.5 trillion may be lost annually to the impacts and management of invasive species. This figure includes impacts by introduced plants, animals, diseases, agricultural weeds, and others, so all together. Several of these species either possess the potential to or have already begun impacting various forest product industries. An establishment example is that of kudzu, which infests an estimated 7 million acres in the southeast and costs approximately 500 million in lost farm and timber product annually. The most recent example of this is the impact the Japanese climbing fern infestations have begun to have on the pine straw production industry in Florida. Pine straw producers have had to abandon leased pine strands in some cases where the Japanese climbing fern infestation made harvest of a clean and legally saleable product impossible. As a state, Florida is at risk for invasion for many reasons. Our subtropical climate, the number and importance of our shipping ports, the extent and importance of the plant-based industries in the state, and the highly transitional population coupled with other factors facilitate the introduction, escape, and spread of these problem plants. In Florida, approximately 30 million in taxpayer dollars are spent annually on invasive plant management in natural areas and waterways. So what do you do if you find an invasive species? Reporting observations of an invasive species helps the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission manage non-native species. The best reports of non-native species are credible reports. These are reports that the species in question can be verified and all necessary data has been included. And you can learn more about this at ivegotone.org. It's I-V-E-G-O-T-1, as in the number one, dot org. And I think that's all for our podcast today. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cultivate Curiosity. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at socialmedia at ecscience.org. Tune in for our next episode in two weeks.